John chapter 3, 17 to 21. John 3, 17 to 21. We'll just begin at verse 16 to remind ourselves of that verse. Light or darkness. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the fact that we have come to this light. We have come to the light, and you have revealed yourself to us, exposed our evil deeds, and now have forgiven us. Thank you for the fact that because we believe in Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, there is no condemnation for us. Thank you for this truth. We pray that you will help us to preach this truth to others, just as we have experienced it, that we might understand it better and preach it to others, that they might also not be condemned. We pray, Father, that you'll show us from your word these truths and give us greater confidence in what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from last time we saw in John 3.16 that God loved the world, that is, the elect, saved world of believers from all over the world, among Jews and Gentiles, those that are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. They do not perish and they receive eternal life. Well, now it is explained in verses 17 to 21 it's explained what he actually means in verse 16. An expansion is given firstly in verse 17, especially to expand on and to explain verse 16. Who are these people who are not perishing but receive eternal life? Who are they? What is the outcome of what God has done on their behalf? That is actually what's there in verse 17. For example, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. That is the benefit or the result of what happens to them. They're, they are not judged or condemned. They are saved. Then in verses 18 to 21, he is contrasting the difference between those who are saved and those who are unsaved. Those who have come to the light and those who remain in darkness. Those who are not judged who are not going to perish, not going to be condemned, and those who are going to be condemned. He, he is now explaining the difference between these two groups, these two people, these two categories. This should not surprise us that the Bible does so. The Bible from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 3, makes a contrast between two ways to know God, or, or two ways, either you know God or you don't know God. Either you are a son of God or a son of the devil. You're either in the light or in the darkness. And the Bible does this to make it absolutely clear to us what is right and what's wrong and follow the right and the light path. Not to follow the wrong and the dark path, but the right 
and the light one. That's what John the Apostle is doing. He's fond of doing that, especially in terms of light and darkness, in, in terms of belief and unbelief, and in terms of justification or deliverance, eternal life, and condemnation and judgment. So, verse 17. Remember we said in verse 16 that the world that God loved is the world of the elect saved believers. Okay, the world of Jew and Gentile around the world of elect saved believers. We have a confirmation of that in verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In verse 16, what he says he has done, he has done in a definitive way according to verse 17. Verse 17 is saying that he actually accomplished it. It's not saying in verse 17 that he hoped it would happen. Verse 17 is not a possibility. It's not theoretical and hypothetical. The Bible does not speak in terms of the theoretical and the hypothetical when it's dealing with God's treatment or God's interaction with the world. And that is whether the world of believers or the world of unbelievers. It's not talking like that. The Bible is not a speculative book. The Bible is not a book that's in theory or a hypothetical. The Bible is not that way at all. The Bible is very effective. It's very definite. It's very practical. It's actually saying what God truly and really accomplishes. Now, if we understand the Bible to be that way, verse 17 is one example of that. Why did God... Send the Son into the world. And he's speaking here of the first coming of Christ. Why did Christ come into the world? Why did the Father send the Son into the world? According to 1 John 4, 14, 15, the Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. So that is a definite purpose that God the Father had in sending his Son. So in verse 17... He is the Savior because it says the world should be saved through him. Through Christ, the world will definitely be saved. So if some people in the world or the vast majority of people in the world are not going to be saved, we have here in verse 17 the fact that it is the world of the saved elect believers that he has in view. When Jesus came into the world in his first coming, why did he come? He did not come to judge us or condemn us. By the way, this word to judge in this passage, I believe if we have in mind the word condemn, we will better understand what he's saying here. Because in the end, on the day of judgment, we are going to be judged, we as believers will be judged, not unto condemnation, but unto our faithfulness. How faithful were we because it says we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Second Corinthians 5, 10 and 11 explain that we are going to be judged. So he's not talking about general judgment. But he's talking about condemnation here in this passage in verses 17 and following. So if we understand this word judgment better rendered as condemnation, and the Greek word can mean that too, depending on the context. So in verse 17, 
Why did Christ come in his first coming? He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then in the end, if the world is going to be saved, who is going to be saved? That is the elect believers. They are going to be saved. Not every person, but those who are chosen by God to be saved. They will be the ones saved. They won't be condemned. There is no condemnation for them. How do we know that there's no condemnation? We know that there is no condemnation because in verse 16 it says they have eternal life. So that's a present possession. They have eternal life. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 24. What happens there? Truly, truly, I say to you, 524. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, meaning condemnation, does not come into condemnation, but has passed out of death into life. We currently possess it and there is no condemnation that awaits us because this transaction, this transfer, transference from Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom, it has happened to us. So there is none uh, no condemnation, only eternal life awaits. Romans 5.1 says, have, therefore, having, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the tense there in, in uh, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. So that's past tense. We, we believers, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we currently have. We have reconciliation or peace. No more animosity between us and God. No more conflict. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation that awaits us on the day of judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what we currently have. We currently possess this wonderful blessing that we are in the right standing before the God of heaven. The one who created us is the one who now has redeemed us and brought us into the family of God. So we are now saved. That's why Jesus came into the world. His first coming to save the world and not to condemn the world of the elect saved believers. However, verse 18, it doesn't work that way with every person. Verse 18, the contrast. He who believes in him is not condemned. Now, that is a summary of what he just said in 17. For us, we who are saved, we are not condemned. But, he says, he who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is condemnation already for those who do not believe. And why? Why is there condemnation already? Well, already in Adam, we are born as sinners. We have a sinful nature. Romans 5 explains how we are condemned and guilty and have a death sentence on us already because of Adam's first sin. 
This is the condition of all mankind. We're already condemned for that reason. But in this case, he says an additional reason, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, whether one, a person has heard the gospel one time or a thousand times, if he doesn't believe that gospel, he is condemned. He is judged already when he does not believe that gospel. Whether you've heard it once or a thousand times, it doesn't matter. If you don't believe it, you are in a state of condemnation already. Already, right now, you are a walking dead man. You have been dead since your birth because of Adam's sin, but now, because of your own sin, and especially in this verse, because you don't believe in Christ, you are with a death sentence on you. There is condemnation. And it does not have to wait for the day of judgment for people to know it, for people to become aware of it, to be warned of it. That day of judgment will come and there will be no turning back on that day of judgment. Once we die, there is nothing else. It is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. Judgment only or condemnation only awaits those who do not believe in the only begotten Son of God. He has said specifically there in verse 18, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are condemned, yes, because of Adam. We are condemned, yes, because of our own sin. But our sin is more egregious, more detestable, more horrific in, in its consequences for us <laughs> If we do not believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, He is the unique, only Son of the Father. He is the Son of the Father by His very nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Invisible God. This is who we believe in. The Bible teaches this. So if the only begotten Son of God, not the adopted sons of God like we are, but the only begotten Son of God, if people don't believe in him, only condemnation awaits. And this is amazing that this would actually occur, that people would deny this son. John emphasizes this point, for example, in John 3.35, John 3.35, in reference to the son and why he is so important or so special. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. If the father loves the son, then why don't we love the son is the implication. We should love the son. If the father loves him, we should love him. And if we love him, it will show by us believing in him. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Who is this son or where did he reside? Where did he dwell before he came to the earth in his first coming? John 17, verse 5. Jesus, our Lord, he prays. And now, verse 5, And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christ is anticipating his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and his ascension into heaven to the place of glory that he 
had and maintained before he came into the world. He's saying there that he had this glory with the Father. So Christ, the only begotten Son, the people that, uh, who deny him are denying this Son who had glory with the Father before the world was created. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, who is this only begotten Son according to this passage? He is a humble Son, the humble Christ Jesus. That's why he says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is showing by example what true humility is. And in his case, Christ's case, he existed in the form of God. He was equal with God, but he did not maintain it or seize it upon it, grasp, keep his hand on it, but he let it go. He let it go in the sense not that he gave up deity, but that he took upon humble humanity. That's the sense in which he emptied himself in verse 7. He took upon humble and weak humanity. He became like a slave. He became like a man and not a sinful man, but he bore the sin of sinful man, according to verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who dwelt in glory before, he who was the Son of God, he who had equality with God, he humbled himself. He showed true humility and he died on the cross for our sins. This is the one that people are rejecting when they don't believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Further, in verses 9 to 11, Philippians 2, 9 to 11, he is the highly exalted one and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's not only the humble one, now he's the exalted one and everyone will face him one day on the day of judgment. And yet, they reject him. So this is why it is egregious. This is why it is detestable in the sight of God and it becomes so worthy of condemnation. Yes, they sin, but their most heinous sin is disbelief in Christ. When they know the truth, when they hear the truth and they don't believe that truth, that is what will really turn up the heat on the day of judgment for those unrepentant sinners because they have rejected the Son of God. You know, people say... Many times, unbelievers say, skeptics, atheists, unbelievers of all kinds will say that if Christ were to appear personally, then I would believe. 
If I had a miracle of God and God himself were to show up, then I would believe. That's what they say. But that is only a smoke screen. It is really not true. It's not true that if that were to happen, they would believe. Who, did Je- who had Jesus among them? And they didn't believe. John gives us many examples, right? He gives us many examples in the book of John. Thankfully, in Nicodemus' case, by the end of the book of John, he does believe. But at the moment, he did not believe. And most of his colleagues in the Sanhedrin, they did not believe. Because in chapter 7, all of his colleagues rail against Christ and want nothing to do with Christ. And Nicodemus is the only one who says, well, wait a minute. Doesn't our law say we first have to hear from the witness or from the suspected criminal? We have to hear from him first before we condemn him? Doesn't the law of Moses teach that? Yes, it does teach that. He's the only one that said it. Everybody else condemned him for saying that, but he said that. There were very few believers in Jesus Christ who actually saw him face to face. Most of the people were in it to see a show, to see a miraculous show, so the crowds would assemble to see Jesus perform miracles or for their bellies to be filled or for them to be healed of something. That's why they came. But very few of them truly believed in the message he preached. Very few, and they walked away. Remember, 500 brethren, more than 500 brethren saw him at one time at his resurrection, which is a big number. But if you compare that to the number of people who assembled, only the men, 5,000 men plus women and children, when they were fed, with the bread and the fish. 4,000 men plus women and children on another occasion. So that would have been in the thousands, the tens of thousands of people if you take both of those incidents together. And yet that didn't help. That did not help. Only 500. And only 120 waited for the day of Pentecost to come in the upper room. Only 120 in the same way. This happens today, that it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how kind you are, how loving you are, how clearly you explain the gospel. It will not happen unless the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to convert the dead, stony heart. Nothing will work except the word of God using this or the spirit of God using the word of God to produce a child of God. That's the way it happens. That should not be a surprise to us. We live in a world of sin. We know our own sin. We know what goes on in our own mind and heart with our own sin. And think about Adam and Eve. When they were first created, was there any sin in the world? No, not a single sin on the day they were created. They had no sin in them. They had an external tempter, Satan, tempting them to sin, on that day, but they did not have sin in them. There was no sin in the world. There was nobody else in the world. No evil, right? They had the whole world set before them and they had the Garden of Eden, a paradise right there. That's where they were placed, in the Garden of Eden. They had everything. They had God walking in the garden, right? In the cool of the day. They had everything, right? But they did not believe one commandment that he gave them. 
They disobeyed that one commandment that he gave them. They were sinless. They were perfect and they lived in a perfect world. And that wasn't enough. That wasn't good enough for them. If sinless man, Adam, could and and did reject God, sinful man will also reject God. It's not hard to understand. It's not hard to see it. That's the way it, it is. So it has to be by a work of God to overcome that. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to produce a child of God. They will not believe otherwise. Now, verses 19 and following. He expands on the reason for the condemnation. He expands on the reason for the condemnation. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and or but, but men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The condemnation, he's justifying or explaining the, the righteous judgment of God that he is righteous to condemn them for what they are doing. And why? Because the light has come into the world. Who is the light? The light is Christ. The light is Christ. Chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it. The light is the light of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And as well in John 9, verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world in that he is the source of light for the world. We are lights of the world, according to Matthew 5, because we reflect his light, or a portion of his light has been gifted to us, therefore we display that. But ultimately, the source of light is Christ himself. And verse 19, the light has come into the world. He came into the world. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He ministered in, in, or lived in, in Capernaum during his ministry. He died in Jerusalem. He rose from the dead in Jerusalem. He ascended there on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He was all right there. He came into the world. He preached faithfully for three and a half years. He had John preaching before him also for about three years before he actually started his own public ministry. He had the prophets preaching this light, the coming of this light. The light then came into the world. So there should have been no dispute. There should have been no doubt. There was absolute clarity that light was in the world. But it didn't work out. He says, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. They actually loved the darkness. Few people Few people, unless you press them on the point, they will very rarely say, I love my sin. I love doing evil. I love being a dark and dirty person. 
They don't want to say that. They don't like to say that. But the Bible says that's who they are. They love darkness. So whether they admit it or not, whether one admits it or not, whether one confesses it to somebody else or not, that's who they are. They love darkness. They love darkness rather than the light. So if they are holding on to darkness, they don't hold on to the light. Therefore, they can't say, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, but I love my darkness too. Or I love this sin too. They can't do that. They are mutually exclusive. You have to keep them apart. It's either Christ who is the light and we love him or we love darkness. It's either one or the other. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, Christ illustrates that very truth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible. Christ says, it's impossible. You have to either have light or darkness. You can't have two masters. You're, you will hate one, you'll hold to one, you'll despise the other. It's one way or the other. It cannot be both and. When we're talking about these matters, it cannot be both and. Remember, we're not talking about trivial matters. We're not talking about, we're talking about matters of life and death. When we're talking about matters of eternal life and eternal death, it's either love light or love darkness. It's either hate the light or hate the darkness. It's one or the other. But why is it? Why is it that people love darkness rather than light? He says in 19, John 3, 19, for or because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. Why do they not love Christ truly? Why do they not come to Christ? Why do they not believe in Christ? Why does that not happen with people? It doesn't happen because their deeds are evil. Because their deeds are evil and they love their evil, dark deeds, they don't come to the light. They won't come to the light because they have evil in them. They want the evil. They want to maintain the evil. That's why they don't come. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In 18, God's wrath is against people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They practice evil deeds And therefore, the truth that they know about God is suppressed. It's muzzled. It's smothered under their evil deeds. They know what the truth is, but they allow or they want their evil to be superior and to smother and put away what truth they know. He says so. They suppress it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How do we know that they know? Look at 19. Because God said, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That which is known about God is evident within them. Within them, in their conscience, they know the difference between light and darkness, between right and wrong. They know it's wrong to hate and to have that hate uncurbed leading to murder. They know that. They know it's wrong to lust, and they know that lust, when it's carried out, is practiced in adultery. They know that. They know that it's wrong to steal. Something belongs to somebody else, and they know that if they seize it and take it away from something that belongs to another man, that that's wrong, and yet they covet after it. And if covetousness is not curbed, is not repented of, it will lead to theft of somebody else's possessions, right? And they know it's wrong when they actually do it. So they want to practice these evil deeds. So what they know to be true, they suppress. They ignore it. They deny it. They do whatever it takes to make themselves, to console themselves that they're okay. They have these uh, uh, compunctions in their conscience. They feel guilty in their conscience and they want to just beat it down, beat it down, beat it down. That's what the Bible means by them being seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron. Seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron. They become so fixed in their practice of evil that they become insensitive to the practice of evil. That's what happens to them. And they do it on purpose. They want to stay in their sin in order to love their sin instead of loving the light of Christ. Verse 20, John 3 and verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Everyone who does evil hates the light. When they do evil, when they want to stay in their evil, they do not come to the light. And in fact, he says they hate the light. They hate the light and they will not come to the light. And why will they not come to the light? Because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. They don't want their deeds to be put on the table to have the light of day shining upon those evil deeds in order for them to reject them, for them to repent of them, to confess them, 
and to tell God and even before men that what they have been doing has indeed been evil. They don't want that exchange to happen. We see in verse 20, they are called, the evildoers are called haters of light. Evildoers are haters of light. You know what often happens when, when Christians are sharing the gospel and they bring up the sin of their hearers? Their, their hearers will often retort by saying, you're just judging me. You don't love me. You, you're, you're a hater. You're a hater. You're a judger. You know, they will say words like this in order to silence the Christian who is explaining the true gospel to them. But in the Bible, who's the real hater that has a destructive kind of hate? Right here in verse 20, the evildoer, everyone who does evil hates the light. When people want to stay in their evil, they are actually the the sinful haters. They hate Christ, though they may never admit that. Sometimes they do, but they actually hate Christ and they hate the body of Christ, you and me. They will hate us because we are attempting to be, in our, even in our own weak and sinful way, imperfect way, we attempt to share the gospel. We are bearers of the light of Christ to them, and yet they retort and they answer, sometimes in a very nasty way. They will come back and say, you people are just haters. And they will call us all kinds of names. When they do so, they do so because they want their evil. They may never admit being haters, but they are haters. They hate Christ. They hate the body of Christ. They hate the word of Christ. They hate the doctrines of Christ. They hate everything. They are the worst haters in the whole world. The Bible says so. And they refuse to come to the light. And why? It's fine. It says in verse 20, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, who doesn't want his deeds exposed? Who doesn't want his deeds exposed? But those who are loving their sin and they console themselves, pridefully console themselves that everything is going to be just fine with them when they die. Isn't that the case? They think that everything's going to be fine with them whenever they die. There's no hell. It's going, to be just, it's going to be just fine. God is infinitely loving, meaning he will never send anybody to hell. He would never create a hell. And after all, everybody sins anyways. Nobody is perfect anyways. I do some good anyways. So my sin does not need to be exposed. That's how they think. That's what they do so that nothing that they do receives the light of day. When they are this way, they are proudly, erroneously thinking that they have security, that they have peace, that everything is okay with them and nothing bad or, or terrible is going to happen to them upon their death. But the word of God, it says the opposite. The word of God says the opposite, and it actually describes them as being very, very hateful 
and uh, deceived people. Very hateful and deceived people. In terms of hate, look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy, sorry, chapter 7, verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Is God gracious and kind and loving? Yes. It's directed, however, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Christ even used that phrase in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Correct? However, verse 10, but God will repay those who hate him to their faces, to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hates him, who hates God. He will repay him, the hater, to the hater's face. (coughs) That is the kind of judgment that actually awaits those who are unrepentant sinners, who love their sin, who love their evil, and don't want their deeds, evil deeds, exposed to the light of the gospel, to the light of Christ. They don't want that. That's what's going to happen to them. Does not the scripture say in Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Even the God of the New Testament is a God who is a consuming fire who will repay those who hate him. Even gentle Jesus, as people portray him, is a wrathful Jesus. Gentle Jesus is also a wrathful Jesus. And even a wrathful lamb. Revelation 6, 16. Revelation 6, 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? When we think of a lamb, we don't think of a lion, do we? A wrathful, ferocious lion. We don't think of that when we think of a lamb, lamb of sheep. We don't think of that. We think of one who is gentle, mild, quiet, without very much strength, right? That's the way we think of it. But the irony of this verse God's irony is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world is also one who filled with wrath against those who will not believe. And no one is going to be able to withstand the wrath of the lamb and of, of the father on the day of judgment. Who is able to stand? No, because the hatred that they have toward the lamb of God will be repaid upon them to their face on the day of judgment, and no one is going to be able to stand. 
He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him for all the haters. But John 3, 21, John 3, 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. One who practices the truth comes to the light or believes in the light. I've been saying coming to the light is synonymous with believing based on John 6.35. Based on John 6.35, coming to the light is synonymous with believing. Jesus said in John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Christ is believing in Christ. But the question is here in verse 21, there's a couple of things that need to be clarified. It says, he who practices the truth comes to the life. Is he saying in verse 21 that you need to prepare yourself You need to practice the truth for a while. You need to practice some kind of penitence, some kind of deed, or a number of good deeds. Or is he saying you need to do so for a day, practice the truth for a day, or for a year, or for 10 years, and then you come to the light? Does he mean it like that? What does he mean when he says, he who practices the truth comes to the light? He's actually not saying any of those things. What he means is, if you want to identify, if you want to know someone who is a practitioner of truth, someone who believes in the gospel, or someone who actually is saved from his sins, you want to know the difference between a son of light and a son of darkness. If you want to know the difference, then he will come or believe in the light. So if someone is never coming to the light, never comes to the light of Christ, never believes in Christ, then you know he's not a practitioner of truth. doesn't matter what he says. He's trying to show us the manifestation or the characteristic of somebody who truly does believe. He practices the truth. But then the next question is, how does he have these deeds that are manifested. Remember, the evildoer doesn't want his deeds exposed. But those who practice the truth, they are open and transparent about their life and their sin. That's what we do whenever we explain our conversion or our testimony to people. We often say, I used to be like this or like that. This was my life and this was my sin, but now I am different because of God's grace that has changed me. I'm not that way anymore. My mind, my value, my my values, my life, they've all been transformed because of the grace of God, the light of Christ that has come into my life. So we are not those who hide. We are are those who are open or transparent about our conversion because we know that we are now humbled by God, saved by God, receivers of His grace. All of that is the case. All of that is true. So our behavior and even our 
reference to our behavior or even our speech in reference to our behavior is different from the people of the world, the evildoers. They are now manifested. Yet, verse 21, it still clarifies how did we come to be in this condition? If we were just like other people, the rest of mankind, if we were just like them, how did we come to this condition? How did we come to this state of being? And this takes us back to the phrase we've been using, the elect saved believers. Believers, that, that has been throughout this passage. The saved, that's in verse, verses 16 and 17. The saved, right? But the elect, that part of it is in verse 21 in our passage. Though it's throughout this book of John. In our passage, verse 21, it says, having been wrought in God or having been done in God or by God. This preposition can mean in or by God. So how is it that we practice the truth? How is it that we come to the light? How is it that our deeds are manifested, displayed, revealed? How is it that these things happen in us? They don't happen in us because we have some residual goodness dwelling in us. We have residual power in our will. We have a, an ability with freedom of will to act and do what we need to do or think in the right way or to choose Christ or to believe in Christ. It doesn't happen that way. John the Apostle, he clarifies. He says, these things happen, practicing the truth, coming to the light, manifesting our deeds. His deeds may be manifested. When this happens, why does it happen? Because they have been done in God or by God. By God's grace, God is the one, 100%, who caused it to happen in us. That is the critical question. It's not a matter of cooperation with God. It's not a matter of us coming to the table, the bargaining table, and trying to strike a deal with God. God comes part way to strike a deal, and we come part way to strike a deal. That's not how salvation works. It doesn't work because we have a residual power and goodness in our will, we may even say it's 1% of our will. 1% power, 99% corruption and, and weakness in our will. But that 1% is just enough for me to muster enough strength to reach out and grasp the gift of God, which is salvation. It doesn't work that way. The Bible's saying that whenever we come to the light, practice these good deeds, they are wrought in God. And by wrought in God or done in God, he means God is the one causing it to happen within us. He's the one that produces a new heart. He's the one that produces faith. He's the one that produces repentance. That is the key to this equation. How does it actually come about? What causes it to happen? John 3.21, he says, having been wrought in God. John chapter 3. John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, we do not cause our own birth or our rebirth. It has to be the Father 
by the work of the Holy Spirit sent by the Son and the Father to create and produce a new birth in us. When we are born again, it happens because God causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. This is the teaching of Scripture. It has to be caused by God. It's not only caused by God before our conversion. It's also caused by God after our conversion. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 and verse 12. 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's saying it is necessary for us to work out or to to display, manifest our salvation with fear and trembling. But he reminds us that this ability, the causation happens because God is at work to will, to cause our will to desire it and to work in us to produce this outflow of goodness and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. He does it in us. It's also in the great benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews, where he says, he, he prays for us, for God, the God of peace to work in us, to equip you, Hebrews 13, 21, to equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 21. It is God who equips us in every good thing to do His will, and He works in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Christ for the glory of God. This is the way it works, and John explains that. So, when we compare ourselves to others who have not believed, we can't take any credit for it. We cannot take any glory for it. We have to say it was God who worked in us by His grace to do His will for His own glory, our redemption, and for His glory. So light or darkness, justification or condemnation, these are the choices that we have. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.